1993, Final Approach changed the way we hunt waterfowl. Now, over 25 years later, we're back at it. My name's Mario, host of the FA Podcast. Let's talk waterfowl tips, tricks, tactics, and more. It's all going down right here with the Final Approach Podcast. Yeah, Mario? Yes, sir. Hold on, let me close these French doors to drown out some of the boisterous uh, behavior. Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, what I have assembled at the house here, we all get together every day, Monday through Friday, and play at my house. And uh, there, uh, some, a couple of them are old snooker players, and one of them's an old free Christian billiard player, and so it's uh, and it, it's something when you play with guys with different techniques especially guys that can make a ball, you know what I mean? Just to watch how they operate because that elevates everybody's game like that. Is there some money changing hands? No, we just we just play for fun. <laughs> Although these guys, they could go into any bar and uh, and and literally clean up. Hang on one second. I got to go get my spit, my, uh, 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 spit cup because I, I'm like a hamster. I got a bunch of beet nut in the left-hand corner of my mouth. Hold on one second. You're just all good. Just an old hillbilly here. Hold on a minute. <laughs> the FA podcast is starting off like perfect. Absolutely perfect. This is going to be one for the ages. No doubt about it. I am, uh, I am convinced that this is going to be incredible. What's interesting is, is these guys who uh, play pool, um, most of them, uh, I would say, are not outdoorsy type guys. Right. You know, as far right. as far as the hunting goes. But uh, since they've been friends with me for years and stuff, they understand it. Gotcha. And you know, they're not judgmental. One of them's a bird watcher, and he wants to kill all the starlings that ever flew for they since I... they imported them over here from England. So. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna need I'm gonna need pictures of all four of them or all three of them, so I know when I see them in a bar, not to say, "Hey, let's play some pool." <laughs> well, hang on. There's more than four of them. There's one, two, three, four. There's six of them down here oh plus me. That's crazy. And sometimes it can be more than that, you know. Oh but gosh. but at any rate, uh, uh, I don't know uh, if your time is limited or not. But we can we can just go ahead and we'll get on with the interview right now, yeah, and uh, we can go from there. Absolutely. I'll follow, I'll follow your lead. I'm, I'm good at it. So, you know, the, the main thing about this is I don't know anyone in the U.S. Or, or even outside the U.S. for that matter that has chased crows longer and has shot more than you. I mean, you are – I mean, I mean, do you let, – let, let me say – let me say this. Do you know anyone that has shot more or chased crows longer than you? Uh, I know people who have chased crows longer than me, but they haven't shot more than me. Okay, because what are you up to now? Like, you, you have your tally every year. So where are you uh, at right now? Yeah, right now, uh, in uh, 47 crow seasons, I've shot 169,705 crows. <laughs> And that's a very conservative count because uh, yeah, you're uh, missing that's, something. that's from 1974 on. When I started getting into it little by little, I didn't even count the crows shot between 1965 and 1973. Oh, my God. What, what, got, you, what got you into it? 
You know what I mean? What 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 took over, or what what did it? What changed you? Well, what happened was uh, when I was a young lad, um, I was born and raised on Long Island, New York, and my father used to go up into upstate New York, and we used to go into Quebec too, right, to hunt crows and woodchucks both. Oh yeah. And my dad loved doing both. You know, he was an avid rifleman and shotgunner, and reloaded all his own ammunition and everything. But uh, right from the get-go, as a young kid, uh, I, I started uh, uh, hunting crows, shooting them on the wing uh, when I was 11 and a half. Now, between 11 and a half and about 14, all I did was make the ammunition manufacturers happy just shooting <laughs> holes in the sky. I mean, I, I remember my first season uh, when uh, uh, I just barely started to you know, get the hang of the coordination right. and everything right. involved. Uh, was shooting a, a flying object out of the air. Boy, I really thought I was some pumpkin. I think I was 14. <laughs> I shot 32 crows the whole summer. You right, know? right. But uh, my dad and I, when we would go up there, my dad would run and gun uh, the crows. And upstate New York back in those days, he knew all the farmers because he'd been going up there for years and years and years. And basically, you'd cruise the back roads and you'd see small family groups of anywhere from, you know, three to five crows in a bunch, you know, so you'd roll past them about a hundred yards and uh, you'd pick out a suitable spot in the right. timber and you'd call them over the timber. As soon as they cleared the trees, you'd shoot them. And what, would, what my dad used to do is since I was, you know, a young kid, 11 and a half years old at the time, um, he would let me shoot first, and and I'd just shoot, be shooting holes in the sky, and right. when he would shoot, they'd be falling out of the air. And right. I remember at the end of the first season, I was disgusted with myself. <laughs> and I'm sitting down on this deadfall log. It was in uh, June or July of, uh, I think, around probably around 1960 or late 59, and... Uh, I told him, I said, I'm just no good at this. I said, I, I'm going to give up. And my dad said, look, he said, you're 11 and a half or 12 years old. He right. says, there's no way that you can compete with me. I've been doing this my whole life. He says, give it time. One of his favorite expressions was, Rome was not built in a day. It takes time. <laughs> and he's right. And he's right. So because of his mentoring and nurturing like that, I stayed with it. And then by the time I was 15, I was getting more and more adept sure. with a shotgun. And then sure. my second cousin, who is in the Second World War, I used to tag along with him and go to the local skeet range. And then I started, you know, shooting more and more clay targets and everything. And that's a whole other story. When right. I was in the United good. States right. Navy... They allowed me to keep my own personal firearms on board the aircraft carrier. I had to keep them stored in the armory. And they had a second-class petty officer. His last name was Knight, and he was an alcoholic. So you were allowed, when you hit the beach, because we shot against other Marine teams and Navy teams when we, uh, when we got to port. Right. And you could shoot, your, your quota was 250 rounds a day you could shoot. So since I ingratiated myself with Mr. Knight, the second-class petty officer who ran the armory, right. I'd bring back two pints of bourbon for him and eat sock with my bell-bottoms on. <laughs> he was happy as a clam. He let me haul as much ammo out of that armory as I wanted to. That's right. <laughs> and what, what I used to do is... I'd be going down the gangway. I needed a dolly to carry all the friggin' ammo. And 
And instead of carrying 250 rounds, I'd grab 500 rounds. And uh, I'd get down the gangway, and then I'd have a taxi cab waiting for me. I'd throw my guns and ammo in the trunk of the taxi, take me to the skeet range. I'd be there all day. And then on the way back, what I would do is, with a cab driver, I'd have him drive me back to the ship first. I'd stick my guns back in the armory, and then I'd take the same cab after I dropped off the dolly in the armory. Um, and I'd go to the enlisted man's club and uh, get myself a nice meal, and I had it made. It was oh, real, man. real good duty. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty good. So, so let me ask you this: So, you, you know, you guys were living in upstate New York. How come? Why was your dad chasing crows? Like, how come he wasn't like a deer fanatic or or something like that? What was the what was the draw there? Well, the main draw was the action. Um, you got gotcha. a chance to shoot more. Right. Uh, and you weren't and you weren't restricted uh, to any kind of a bag limit. That That's was true. the main draw right, right there, because my dad loved to shoot. He just liked shooting, right? I got it. I, I, and, I I'm and, with him. And the, and the thing was, as it turned out, uh, uh, as I got older, uh, when he started getting elderly, he says I created a monster. He says I believe you like shooting a hell of a lot more than I ever did like that. So, <laughs> and he's and but, he's right. And then listen, I'm right there with you. The the whole the whole draw to me and and listen i'm i'm not even close to you guys and 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 anything else i am just literally starting to emerge myself and every season i get more and more obsessed with it and it's the it's it's hiding and calling and when you fool them because no matter what anybody says the most intelligent animal that i've hunted is a crow there is no doubt about it now there's well, some dumb the, ones, the, you know, and, and there's some dumb ones, and there's some, you know, some somewhat smart ones, but there's some that are in, in incredibly intelligent. Sure, sure. What see, what happens is when you're hunting large numbers of crows, uh, whenever I get set up in a location to hunt crows, my preference is is to be in an area where they're coming just one or two at a time, because that's all I can handle anyway, because I still shoot holes in the air. Don't let anybody <laughs> kid you. But at any rate, to make, uh, uh, if they're coming just one or two or three at a time, um, that way you don't have them all spooked. If they're coming right. in 40 or 50 at a time and you right. shoot two of them, then you got 48 of them that are scared to death. And a good illustration of that uh, is in one of the YouTube videos that I have on uh on the internet, uh, anybody who types in Bob Aronson crow hunting, they're like that. All those videos will come up, and I don't know if it's hunting the greatest avian marauder or which one it was, but it shows me uh, this is exactly what you don't want to do. But I did it simply because we were making a video, and I did it for the dramatic element sure. of it. Okay, sure. And I'm and I'm using a hand call, and there was probably I'm guessing. Uh, I would say probably at least at least 100 to 150 crows are coming over at one time right to the blind. And it made for some dra very dramatic film footage, oh, I and bet. I shot three of them, you know, but you had the rest of them scared to death. That's right. So that's a very good illustration of what not to do. But I only did it just for that, that particular mm -hmm. purpose. But at any rate, getting back to uh, when you have them just coming one or two or three at a time, where they're spaced out in intervals like that, where you got them coming, you know, every couple of three minutes like that, over the course of hours being in one spot, you can rack up a lot of crows. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. So so if somebody was just getting into it, right? So you know, because listen, it's not like crow hunting is like you know uh, everybody is doing it. People are fighting over places to go. Like that's not the case with this. You know, guys that are getting into it, maybe you're getting into it for something else to do. They enjoy wing shooting. They maybe have a predator problem and they're trying to get rid of some. Some of the farmers are doing them a favor. So what would you tell a guy who's just starting out? What are they looking for as far as a place? Like you said, you don't want to set up on the roost. You don't want to set up on the exact feed where they're all going. So you want to get in between so you can pick off a few and not spook the bunch. So scouting, obviously, is number well, one. Well, in answer to your question, it depends on what method you want to use. If you're okay. using the run-and-gun method, by the time you get out there and start doing that, the birds are already going to be fragmented into small groups like right. that. Right. Uh, it also depends on what method you choose, depending on on the time of year that you're going to be hunting them. For That's instance, true. if you're going to be using the run-and-gun method, it's going to make it more difficult because all the foliage is off the trees, That's okay? Right. So you have to choose areas that are more wooded where uh, you have more cover in front of you to break up your silhouette and, right. and your movements and so on. Right. Um, if you're going to be hunting them from a fixed blind location, provided you have enough birds in the area, uh, to make it worthwhile to do that, then what you want to do is, uh, if you most, a lot of guys like hunting them in the morning, uh, uh for, you know, in my experience, I've had good shoes both in the morning and afternoon, both. So a lot of it depends on the region of the country that you're located in and the amount of crows that you have to right. work on that. That's, that's basically it because, you can be the best crow hunter in the world, and if you live in the wrong part of the country, you're only going to do so well, and that's, that's it. That's right. Well, I, I definitely am not the best crow hunter in the world, but I am definitely not in the best spot in the world because, listen, if, we, if I see 60 to 70 crows in a day, I am lucky. And if I shoot, if I end up shooting anywhere from 12 to 20, that is a really, really good day. See, 12 to 20 for you would be, uh, that would be equivalent to possibly shooting several hundred out here. Right, exactly. So, and I'm set up, you know, there's a, there's a huge garbage dump by me, okay? And they, okay. Come, and they come off the garbage dump and they want to come in, they, 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 they tinker around and fiddle around and maybe find some food at the garbage dump and stuff then they come off and they're looking for a drink or they're looking to roost in the trees or they're looking to just go for a uh you know a fly or whatever so i i make sure i stay far away from the dump and i set up the decoys and i'm always well hidden and i just try to pick them off like you said i just try to get my ones and twos and yeah, you're getting them when they're trading around when yes. they're leaving the dump, just going yes. to sit in other trees That's and right. just stuff like that. That's right. So I'm just okay. kind of tinkering them, you know, at that and just trying to pick away at them. Because if I go down and, you know, car, call hard or use the electronic call and get them fired up, the whole bunch will come. And, yeah, and then it's that's like you said, you know, what are you going to do? If, as soon as you shoot, you mess the whole bunch up. To give you a good example of that, depending, now this was in 
uh, Kansas when this happened. There used to be a roost uh, about 15 minutes from my home around the town of Medora, Kansas. It held well over one million crows. Oh and um, wow. uh, when the people and the, and the people in Fish and Game who said that it held well over a million crows, I have to tell you honestly, I don't know how anybody can tell the difference <laughs> between one million crows and 500,000 500, crows or 750,000 crows. I mean, how that... You know, all it was was a best guess estimate there right. like that, you know, in their opinion. All I can tell you was there was a hell of a lot of crows. <laughs> but at any, at any rate, um, uh, many times um, uh, at this particular roost, well, it was still active when I moved out here during the 70s and 80s, um, there was a, uh, a local sewer plant that I used to set up at <clears throat> and I would, uh, I would position, uh, uh, my blind. I was about, uh, I'm guessing probably 175 to 200 yards north of the sewer, gotcha. sewer plant. It was along a Creek. And a lot of those birds like to follow the Creek and it was about 11 miles from the roost. So a lot of times, by the time you got out there in the morning, you didn't have to get out there in the dark and be setting right. up decoys and stuff like that. You could get out there very leisurely because a lot of them wouldn't even get out there until about 8, 8, 15, 8, 30. And then your shooting would last. It would be steady. And what I mean by steady, all day. I'm, I'm talking, well, no, not all day, but Just say, from, say from 8, 30 until probably about 1 o'clock in oh, the yeah. afternoon. It was oh, yeah. steady. And, you know, if you couldn't kill a couple of hundred crows at that place any time you decided to go, if you let it rest in between for a few weeks, there was something wrong. So, at any rate, there was another place that I used to hunt when you were talking about uh, garbage dumps. It was a big landfill right here in Hutchison. And uh, here again, the crows would come right off the Arkansas River, where I had many a good crow hunt, and they'd follow this creek on the way down to the dump. So my hunting buddy back in those days, he was hunting deer in Texas, and I was hunting solo that morning. And I was a young guy back in those days. It was my first really big shoot that I ever had. <laughs> and um, uh, the crows were, I had a pair of Model 12 Winchesters with me. At any rate, by 11.15, I ran out of ammunition. I fired 632 rounds of 20-gauge ammo, and 410 crows were... Uh, dead on the ground, and I was too far from home to run back and get more ammo because I could have stayed there for another few hours. Oh, I mean, I they were still dribbling in there like oh, that, God. but that's what happens. When, that is the difference between having a lot of birds to work with that's and right. having a small amount of birds to work with that's where right. you're set up. I don't know how far you are from the dump, but you're hoping to catch them one or two at a time. Um, you know, because you don't want to have the whole bunch come in. That's that right. day that I shot the 410, oh my gosh. they were coming anywhere between one to three to maybe a dozen at a oh. time, and that and that was it. You know. So when you're but, when you're set up on something like that, right? So you're, yeah. you're set up. How many decoys are you using on a set like that? Because you're you're basically you know in between where they're going and what they're following the river, and you're kind of trafficking them. So that's right. What are you? That's right. What are you doing as far as decoys, and then you're calling as well? I'd love to hear right. that. That's right. That's right. What? Well, like for instance, what I did was that particular day, I had uh, sixteen uh, crow decoys in the trees, and then there were so many dead ones on the ground right. that when they that <laughs> when they would when they would clear the trees, 
they were fixated on all the dead birds on the ground, and they clearly knew that they were dead because, as you said before, uh, crows are considered Man. the fourth smartest bird in the world. The only birds that are smarter than them are your parrots live to be over 100 years old and some of your minor birds, right. and that's it. But your game birds, and you know, upland game, right? They're and the smartest game ducks, geese, right? Uh, they they don't even make it on the That's ten right. most intelligent birds in the world. They, they're you know, they, uh, a, a duck and a goose is an imbecile compared to a crow. <laughs> That's right. You're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. So as far as your calling, then, so okay, so so what are are you just you know. Are you just coaxing them in at that point because, you know, you got everything in the trees and are right. you hand calling or are you using electronic or what? I was I was using both. Gotcha. And uh, as a matter of fact, if you go to any of the videos that I've got on uh, YouTube, I've got one that's excellent. It's an old video. My wife shot it in the 1980s. And toward the end of the video, it goes black. But before it turns black at the end, okay, where you can't see a damn thing, it's got some great film footage on hand calling the crows. And you can see them coming right up to the blind. And my wife did a great job where she was standing in back of me where you can see the back of my head, my shoulder, and you can see the muzzle moving on the crow and seeing them getting shot in the air. You know, it's not like the shot cam videos that right. the guys put on their muzzles. Yep. This is where you really feel like you are right there, brother. You yeah, know? you're right in it. And Yeah, but getting back, to, uh, you were asking me what calls I was using that particular day. Um, in the beginning, when I first started, I was using what they call a recognition call, where it's not threatening. It was just right. enough to get him in nice and leisurely. And I did that for probably the first 75 to 100 birds that I shot. And then after that, then I started getting the calls more aggressive because the reason why I did that was to shift gears is because when those crows were coming in, when they were hearing a fighting call, they saw already there was you know, over 100 dead birds on the ground already with the crows in the trees. They were expecting some mayhem. And basically, that is what I was, uh, what I was doing. I, I was basically appealing uh, to their tempers. And crows do get mad. You know, you can hear them hollering sometimes. They're coming in where uh, you know, they've got blood in both eyes wanting to tear the place apart when they get in there. And that's what was happening. And I had a grand time uh, doing it. I'm just sorry I didn't bring more ammo. And that's that, right. otherwise, there's no telling how many I could have shot in there. Well, there's no doubt. There's no doubt they get angry because if you if you go from, you know, just like you said, if you go just from your standard calling into into a, a fighting sequence or a fighting sound, it their demeanor changes immediately. You know what that's I mean? Right. They go, and you know, that's why a lot of guys used to, and they still do, a lot of guys used to hunt them with owl decoys or, sure. or put something else out so it, uh, so they, they fight it. I mean, just you put that fighting, you go to that fighting sound and those fighting sounds, and they just immediately go, I think they almost go bananas where they're, they're not really thinking. They're just in fight mode, and they just commit and come. My dad... Um he had a live great horned owl before I started wing shooting. Oh, wow. I, you know, I'm talking when, and I can remember the owl, you know, like when I was six or seven years old. And it was a huge cage that he kept him in. It was six feet tall. Oh, my gosh. And, and it was uh, at least, 
at least 12, possibly 16 feet to my recollection long, and it was probably about 12 feet wide. At any rate, they all had plenty of room flying around in there, but he'd only use that owl during the fall and winter. He didn't use them during the summer months when we would run and gun together because it was just too much of a hassle because you didn't need it. But when there was less cover on the trees and, and there were no leaves on the trees, my dad would take that owl, and he had a pole that he used to, I mean, the, the owl would get up there on, he used to handle them with a big pair of gloves, but he had a padlock on the cage where the owl was kept to keep me out of there because he didn't want me in there getting getting torn up by that great horned owl. And what he would do is, we lived in Long Island, New York, and we would go upstate New York to hunt the crows. So my dad, every week, he'd go to this kosher chicken market. And they had a rabbi there. And the rabbi, for all his other customers, would kill the chickens and they'd have a ritual and all this kind of stuff. Right. And uh, my dad, he'd just buy seven chickens on the hoof. He'd take them home in a, in a, you know, a couple of boxes where they'd cram all the chickens in there. Right. And he'd throw all the chickens in there with the owl. And they all sat on the same big, long perch, the chickens and the owl together. <laughs> Everybody got along famously during the daytime. <laughs> But once it turned, once it started getting dark, and you'd go out there the next morning to make sure that the owl had enough water, there'd always be one chicken less. <laughs> there'd be five, and then there'd be four on the stoop, that's, and then three right. on the log until they so, were gone. So the, the smarter chickens, boy, they'd keep shuffling around to get on the back of the line to get another day's worth of life. Oh my God, that is so funny! Oh, that's so yeah. funny. Well, that and so so when he would take the owl, would he and he'd take it hunting, right? Yeah, he'd have, he'd have and, it tethered on a oh leather thong, God. and um, you know he had these uh, 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 big leather gloves because the talons on that owl, oh, man, if he ever incredible. got a hold of you, it'd be oh, just it'd be terrible. Right, and. Um, the uh, uh, he used that owl for years. Well, oh I was kid. This was long before I ever started wing shooting. And my my uh, oh, uh, second cousin, the one who I used to go to the street range with from the time I was about thirteen or fourteen years old on, getting used to shooting clay targets and and just getting more in the rhythm. That's right. Uh, you know, learning the sight picture and and with the, you know right. basically when you're talking about shooting a shotgun, it's definitely eye to hand coordination but it's also timing when oh, you're talking rhythm. about shooting it's, birds out yeah, of the air like that. no doubt it's a rhythm and it's yeah. a, and it's a mind game too if you get into a if you get into a bad stretch your mind could take over too so you have to you have to focus on your rhythm and just shooting you know what I mean? Just that, shoot. That, that is true in any competitive sport yep. where, where your focus lies yes. like that. And when you're having a bad day, just don't dwell on it. You just got to work through it, and that's yep. it. You got to shake it off. So he that's ties. Right. So I'm picturing it. You know, you, he ties the owl up on this, you know, like you said, on this on this log or stoop or whatever, and the owl's sitting there, and I got to Well, he had, a, he had an extension pole that used oh to go together God. in sections. Oh, my God. And it used to go up there 20 feet. And uh, what he would do is he'd always take the owl. He'd never put the owl out in the open. He'd he'd put the owl back in the densest, thickest timber he could find. And everybody would be thinking, even my cousin, when he first started hunting with my dad, he said, man, he said, the crows are never going to see him in there. He says, are you kidding me? He says, you're looking at stuff. And here's something that's important. Yes. Most guys, they look over at their 
decoy setups and everything and they get out and they look at the blind and they look at the decoys and they say, boy, everything looks great. But they're looking at it from their perspective on the ground. From the air, the birds see a whole different perspective. For instance, uh, when you're in an area and you have, uh, you know, a multitude of uh, dead birds on the ground and you're and you're hunting in weeds that are maybe a couple of feet high i've had guys say to me man they're never going to be able to see the birds in those weeds and i said of course they can see them because they're looking from an elevation looking down they see them in the weeds trust me and they do so um the reason why my dad put the owl in the timber like that was also to protect the owl so they couldn't get at them as easy when they'd start mobbing them, getting around them like that. Right, they couldn't bomb them and get them. You're right, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, at any rate, um, uh, the the, the thing is, when you're in in dense timber like that, you got to try to find uh, uh, shorter trees. And when I say shorter trees, I'm talking trees that are... uh, um, you know, uh, 45 to 60 feet tall is ideal like that. They come over the top of trees like that. I mean, you can just pulverize them for crying out loud. Yep. But you got to have thick enough cover in front of you so that I can't see what's going on until they get right in there to you. And uh, and that's the way I've hunted them for years like that, and it's worked out real well. Now, early in the season, you can pull anything on them once. You can set up right, right out in the damn open, for crying right. out loud, That's and right. they'll come. That's right. But after they've had a few oh, doses yeah. of grim experience like that, <laughs> what happens is those crows will be approaching your setup, and when they get to probably uh, 75 to 100 yards out, they get too long a time to look it over, and they've been burned over stuff like that before. That's, That's when right. you see them fade off and they just don't come within shotgun range. And that's what's going on when you're dealing with birds who have been shot. That's where you got to go more toward a timber-type setup that's right. in order to draw them in over the trees. Well, and I've said this, and I've said this to a couple people that I've taken, and I said, I said, listen, if, if we get a couple crows coming, and if there's one to five or whatever it is, I said, if they make one swing or two, whatever's in range, shoot. Because if they take enough turns around, they're going to realize the decoys aren't moving. They're going to see something, and they're going to get in a high tree, look at everything, and leave. Or they're just going to leave. So I said, you got to shoot, and I don't care what it is. If I tell you to shoot, just shoot. I don't care if it's one or two, because or else we're getting no shooting, and they're just going to go. And now we just kind of educated them on something and now that area is busted for however long you know you brought up a good point there that i ordinarily wouldn't have even have thought of during our interview uh, just talking um is when people start out hunting crows and it's the same thing for hunting waterfowl too uh, anything that that flies okay if you have your quarry coming to you before you gain enough experience in yourself most guys They'll either shoot too soon or too late. There's, especially with with birds, once they start getting on to what's going on, uh, when crows get spooky like that, they're only going to give you 
there's only an instant where they're vulnerable before they'll fade off on you like that. And, and, and it's knowing and having the ability to be able to take that shot when it's right. They're like that. So, uh, and that's something that you just learn over experience over the years, you know, and knowing when it's like anything else that you do, whether you're an auto mechanic or whether you're shooting crows out of the air or playing golf, it's knowing what to do and when to do it. That's right. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Now, one thing, one thing that I added this year because we, we have a lot of uh, grass fields, pastures. There's a ton of that kind of cover out here, right? So right. I switched up a couple things, and this year, and I said I'm going to take like the layout blind, you know, that you hunt geese with, or you know, right. ducks in certain spots. I'm going to take the layout blind, totally grassed up. I'm going to go stick it on a fence line somewhere or somewhere in a pasture that has a little bit of grass but not much, and I'm going to find one tree and put a couple crows in it, uh, decoys in it, and then I'm going to put the rest out in front of me, and I'm going to start because that has changed uh, my hunting out here as far as where I can go because I know there's not a lot of crow hunters out here, and and they're not used to being – you know, that spooky in a very wide open because they could see everything. And as long as I, you know, sit still with my head in the blind and don't move anything and just wait till they commit, they are just very close when you're taking those shots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it's mm-hmm. been incredible. It's, it's uh, you, know, you can uh, shoot yourself in this regard. But as far as advice that I might give you, absolutely. If uh, uh, you know, you can shoot them out of a layout blind. But in my opinion, in my humble opinion, that's okay for hunting waterfowl. It's okay for hunting ducks and geese because when you get them over the decoys, they're cupped up. Especially geese, because you know geese is oh, like yeah. shooting balloons on the end of a string. When you get them over decoys, they're that's sitting right. there, they're posing for you. Okay. That's right. Uh, but crows are different because a lot of times if you got crows that don't come right out in front of you where you can get up in a sitting position, you know, you are restricted to basically a 45 degree angle of swing is what you're doing. That's true. And whereas if you're in a blind sitting down where you're able to stand up easy, you increase that from, uh, from 45 degrees to about 180 degrees out in front. As a matter of fact, in some situations, it's 360 degrees, There's okay? No but but, you, but you, want basically, you want the shots out in front of you 180 degrees in front of you, depending on what angled shot you're going to be taking. That is true. What I would do is, if I was you, if it's areas that you know, I would uh, rustle up. Make yourself a portable blind, something that is probably, uh, how, how tall a man are you? Oh, five foot nine. Okay. Then you get yourself a, a blind that is, uh, say, uh, 55, 50 to 55 inches tall, okay? So when you stand up, all they're going to see is just the top of your head and your cap and you grass it up pretty good. Right. And uh, when you're sitting down in the blind there like that, you anything. also have the option of shooting them sitting down too, if you if you choose to. Right. But uh, you'll shoot a lot better if you can ease up. A lot of times with crows, 
if you got a good blind, and the back of the blind is just as important as the front. If it's nice and thick on the back, if you're in a south-type breeze and the sun is coming up every morning in the southeast, if you don't have a good cover on the backside of your blind, you're going to be daylighted where they can see your movements with the sun hitting your back, okay? And, uh, you know, they, they, they can pick you out much easier where if you keep the back end of that blind brushed up real well just like the front of the blind you can get away with a lot more movement in the blind itself where they won't pick up and you know a lot of guys will say oh man you know you got to have a head net and a face mask and gloves and all that other type of stuff well that might possibly be true if you're hunting with no blind but if you got a decent blind i've never I wear a camouflage hat, and once in a while I wear a camouflage jacket, and that's it. But I've never worn a face mask. <clears throat> and my partner, Dick, <clears throat> he was telling me, because he, he hunts a lot of ducks and geese and waterfowl all over the place, and, and the crows, too. And I've sat with him in dense cover, and I never thought it would be possible to do, but if you're in trees that are tall enough around you, like what I'm talking, you know, that are maybe, uh, you know, 20 yards tall, something that's tall enough where they got to clear the trees to see what's going on. I've sat on a couple of buckets with him and uh, no blind, no nothing, just sitting on a bucket, but I was in camouflage, no face mask, but we were in full camo, Uh, no gloves, nothing on our face, just holding still. And you could be have your face up looking at them. And he says, by the time they are flying around looking at you, as long as you hold still, he said, your face is the size of a friggin' postage stamp for crying out loud to them. They don't know what it is. He says, it's the movement. But when they're in the right spot, go ahead and take them. And then the more dead ones that you get on the ground, they're fixated on that, especially when you're using an electronic game caller. Now, if you had to use a hand call, where you had a lot more movement, you know what I mean, muffling the right. call and, and doing all that kind of stuff. That's right. Uh, then they would pick you out a lot easier. But when you got an electronic call where you got the speakers away from you, you can get away with stuff like that. So uh, there's no one way and there's no one method uh, to hunt crows. Agreed. Uh, it, it's all uh, what is... Um, uh, it, Whatever the terrain you're in, you have to pattern your hunting methods according to that. For instance, the reason why we were sitting on the buckets like that is because in the area that we were in, there just weren't that many crows, and it wasn't worth setting up a blind and decoys (laughs) and all that stuff. And it was in the middle of the day, and we had a little time to kill, and we didn't want to just sit in the truck, you know, just uh, uh, looking at the countryside. Right. So uh, we had a little time to kill, and we still got a little bit of action. Not a lot, I, I might add, but we did get right. some. But, but he proved his point, at least. But, um, and that, that's why I say you have to pattern your right. technique that you use depending on the region that you're in. And that's why I say with you, where you were talking about uh, getting into a layout blind like that, you can still do that. I mean, if you want to do that, hey, power to you. All I'm saying is is that you're restricting yourself greatly by hunting like that. You'll do a lot better if you're in a blind where you can ease up slow, not come out of there like a jack-in-the-box, you know what I mean? You come up there nice and easy, and uh, they don't see it till it's too late. Now, I did did make sure of this, too, so you know. Like, I did make sure I was like, I was like, okay, the birds are going to come, the crows are going to come off of my right, 
The wind is blowing from my left to my right, so they're going to come into the wind. I have right. my back to the fence, so and there's nothing behind me but but uh, you know woods and areas. So they're going to have to come. I'm guessing from my right, just because of the wind. So I made it so they had to come right in front of me. You know, in my certain spots when I do the layout blinds. Now, in you know when you're in the trees and a couple other places, you can kind of. You know, like you said, you could shoot 360. So whatever the wind's doing, you can make sure you get it. You know what I mean? Right. You'll take the right. best shot you can. So I guess what I was doing is I was trying to get as many factors in my, you know, arsenal and my plus box as I could get. So, and I'm not doing it all the time, but when I do do it, it seems to it seems to be working just in different places. Like I said, you know, when when they're you know they're used to coming to the trees or they're used to going here, but they're they're not used to getting you know, chased in an open field or somewhere where that's wide open. So it's kind of just sure. expanded a little bit for me. And it's different everywhere. Like you said, you have to adapt to, and you have to conform to what you have if you want to, you know, chase them and kill them and be successful, you know? That, yeah, that's very, very true. Very true. <clears throat> I'll, t- I'll give you an example this year of where you have to adapt. <clears throat> Dick, my hunting partner, I've been hunting with him for 20 years. And, um, uh, and and the method that the both of us use quite a lot is is uh, we will have when we have an electronic call the speakers in back of us so the crows have to come over us getting to where the calling is coming from. Gotcha. Well, later in the year when those crows get onto that, <clears throat> they don't come right over you going to the speakers. They're a lot more leery. So mm-hmm. Dick and I were set up. This was this season, as a matter of fact. We're both in the blind, and every time we get a shot, the crows are always, instead of coming right to the front of the blind, they'd always be swinging around the back of the blind. And I told Dick, I said, I'm getting tired of spinning around like a top like this, having to shoot them out of the back end of the blind. And I grabbed the speakers and the, the, the Snow Crow Pro unit, and I moved the damn speakers out in front of us. Right. And I said, now, when those uh, crows come in, the, the smarter ones, which they've been doing, uh, right. you know, for the last hour to us, I said, when they start swinging around the backside of those speakers, they're going to be in front of us instead of in back of us. <laughs> and Dick, Dick, Dick was saying, oh, it'll never work, it'll never work. But here, see, here's something uh, uh, to think about. A lot of times when you're with anybody in any endeavor that you are, are doing, sometimes what is obvious to you is not obvious to somebody else and that's why uh you know you do things like that like that just absolutely did not uh compute in my hunting partner's mind to do something like that he wasn't seeing it but you were right right Uh, another time i was hunting with a guy he came out from kentucky and we were hunting together hell of a nice kid and uh um you know he was uh just uh, how can I put this uh, without sound uh, like I'm self-grandizing here? Okay, um, grandizing—that's a great word for old hillbilly for crying that out loud. Is, but that's anyway, a big one right there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> getting back to, um, we were set up in a draw, and these crows were kind of spooky, and they would come up within a hundred yards, and they kept peeling off, fading off, and the speakers were in back of us. So instead, what we did was, I said, um, 
grab as many shells as you can carry. And I said, we're going to move downwind about 100 yards, and we're just going to let the electronic call play. And we did. Right. <laughs> we moved down there 100 yards. We had to make several other trips going back for ammo. Get more ammo. We shot, over, we shot over 300 crows doing that, just being able to adapt yes. to that particular situation like that. And um, at any rate, uh, talking about shells, I, I used to have all my ammo loose in those days because I used to handload. Oh, and I'll give you this. Is, I haven't thought about this in a long time, <laughs> but I posted it on, I think, Crow Hunting Addicts the other day. But um, uh, my old hunting partner who died 20 years ago, his name was Boyd Robeson. Great guy. He was a gunsmith. I hunted with him for years and years and years. And both of us had our shells <coughs> empty, or not empty, full in five-gallon buckets. Right. And a full five-gallon bucket will hold 650 20-gauge rounds, and it'll hold, oh 12, it'll hold 500 12-gauge rounds. <laughs> so at any rate, I got all my ammo loose in a bucket. So here comes this farmer, and he wanted to crawl into the two-man blind with us, and we told him we'd love to have you. But there's only enough room for two of us because we're both standing shoulder to shoulder in this blind. It was only six feet long. Right. So <laughs> at any rate, he goes down the road about a half a mile, shoots up his ammo, whatever little ammo he had. Here he comes rushing back. And he says, can you give me some more ammo? And I said, well, I'd love to, but I don't have boxes. I only got them loose in five-gallon buckets here. He says, well, let me have two gallons. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> That's going to cost you. Yeah. Oh, my yep. God. So are you... So I, I, I gave him a half a gallon. He went down the road again. <laughs> Here's a pint. Out. Here's a pint. Yeah. Get moving. Yeah. What, uh, what are you shooting as far as... Uh, have you always shot a 20? Or... Well, for the first 16 years, <clears throat> I shot nothing but a 20-gauge. Once in a while, yeah. once in a great while, I might bring a 12-gauge with me, but... 95% of the crows that I shot the first 16 years out here, <coughs> pardon me, were shot with a 20-gauge. I even shot a few of them, but, you know, it didn't amount to anything. I mean, right. I went out a couple of times with a 410 and shot some. I remember right. the best hunt that we had, uh, uh, Boyd and I, both of us were using uh, 410s. We killed 130-some crows one morning between the two of us. Wow. But, but you're still limited because... Uh, uh, it's a it's a fun gun to shoot. No no denying, yes. and a lot of satisfaction out of shooting them with a four ten. But if you if you want to if you want to kill a lot of crows, you're just too restricted with a four ten. Right. <laughs> but yep. at any rate, getting back to uh, uh, do I shoot just a twenty gauge these days in more modern times? Since I travel a lot to hunt crows now out of state, <clears throat> it's all twelve gauge, and the reason why I do that is because it makes things a lot simpler. This way I don't have 20 gauge shells in the right. in the in the uh in the truck, 12 right. gauge shells and <laughs> whenever I would hunt um if I had uh both 20 gauge and 12 gauge <coughs> I would have to carry four guns with me because you always <laughs> wanted to have a backup gun. That's right. You have so, to be ready. That's right. This way, I only have to carry two guns with me. And what I've been shooting for about the last, I would say, the last 12 to 15 years is um, it's a Beretta Model 391 Eureka. Oh, yeah. And now uh, uh, I had a, a, a Beretta A400. It was a nice gun. And it was a pretty good shooter. 
but it didn't fit me as well as the two model 391 Berettas that I've got. So what I did was uh, a real nice kid that I got acquainted with. He came up here to Kansas from Oklahoma to tour my crow museum. And I told him he already had one a 400 Beretta. And uh, I told him, I said, I've got an A400 down at the Sporting Goods shop that I've got on consignment for about the last six months. I said, in order to get rid of that damn thing, I'll make you a hell of a deal. (laughs) So (laughs) so he says, let's go take a look. So I think I paid about 16 or 1700 bucks for that damn thing. And uh, I told him, uh, I told the guy in the store, too, when I went in there, I said, this guy wants to buy this shotgun, so I don't want to beat you out of any commission because it's been here for six months. You just tell me what I owe you, and we'll call it good so everybody can remain friends, okay? And uh, at any rate, he said, Bob, you've been a customer of mine for years. I'm not going to charge you a damn thing. Go ahead. If you can sell it this way, go ahead. So (laughs) Dale took a look at it, and I had Briley choke tubes in it and all that type of stuff. And um, he says, how much do you want for it? I said, because you're a good guy, you're a young kid. I said, uh, if you got 1100 bucks cash, you can buy yourself a shotgun. He went down to the ATM machine, peeled off $1,100 bills faster than you could say there the cat go. in the hat. Great deal. <laughs> what? So, uh, go ahead. So, go ahead. But, but I've stayed with the Model 391 Berettas, and my partner, <clears throat> he shot the Model 391 oh. Berettas for years and years and years. And he wanted to uh, uh, just try out the A300 Beretta, which is half the cost of the A400. And he shot it this year and uh, shot it the whole season, had no problems with it. And my 391, I've got my number one gun and I've got my number two gun. And I didn't hunt crows uh, as much this year as I have in past years. I might have fired eh, maybe a couple of thousand rounds through that number one gun. And do you know that Dick, (laughs) I think one of the reasons his guns uh, uh, don't last as long as they should is because he he takes them apart. He wears them out, taking them apart all the time. All I did with mine, I never cleaned it. All I did is I took carburetor uh, cleaner. Yep. It's in a it's in a spray can. Point it muzzle down, and I blow all the crud out of the receiver for crying out loud. <laughs> keep the muzzle pointed down overnight. Next day, I get up, hit it with a little bit of solvent. And I'm ready to go again. Shot the gun the whole season. Never even had to take it apart. That's right. Now at the end of the season, <laughs> that's different. I took right. it all apart. Right. And cleaned up all the gas ports and all that stuff. That's right. Now, had I been shooting twice as that amount, which is normally the way it goes, right. then I probably would have uh, done something to it mid-season. Right, take it but, apart right, halfway but, through. But that's the thing. A lot of guys, what a lot of guys don't realize is I was looking at a post on another shotgunning site where they were uh, praising the 1100. Now, the 1100 for the average guy was a great shotgun. But I spoke to the Remington rep years ago, and I told him my partner Dick. I said he could never get him to last, you know, right. on the uh, with the crow hunting. Yep. And the Remington rep said, with the amount of guy, shells that you guys shoot, he said the Remington 1100 was designed to shoot flawlessly for the first 10,000 rounds. After that, you're going to have to start replacing stuff and this right. and that. <clears throat> Whereas the Berettas. Those are a much better, much better, uh, as far as well-made shotgun goes, um, 
And I'll tell you what, I've shot them for years and years and years and absolutely punished them where a lot of times where I talk about my number one gun and number two gun. Right. If you really start getting into the crows, that's when I'll break up the number two gun (laughs) so I don't get the number one gun so hot because that's that's the the hardest thing on parts when you get them really hot. That's right. And that way I just trade off. To give you a good example of that, in 2010... I had the largest crow shoot that I ever had in my life. I was staked out in this really good feeding area. And in this feeding area, I watched it. And they had a good flyway that went through there in the morning. So here again, you have to have the stars line up right for you uh, whenever you're talking about the huge, fantastic shoots, okay? Now, what happened... In the morning, the crows came through there for probably the first, I would say, the first hour. Um, It was as fast as you could keep the gun loaded, okay? (laughs) And I think in the first hour, or a little over an hour, uh, I had, I know I had at least 150 crows on the ground. Well, as the day progressed, I was getting birds in and out of that feeding area all day long, for crying out loud. And I remember the farmer came up to me after I was done because uh, uh, there was a guy, uh, one of his friends, who happened to get a hold of me. He says, you got to come down here and look at this after that friend of yours was shooting down there. And the farmer <laughs> asked me, <clears throat> he said, how many crows did you shoot down there? And to keep it on a low key, I told him ah, a couple of hundred. And he said, man, it sure looks like a lot more than a couple of hundred to me. Well, at any rate, there was 834 of them dead on the ground there all around the blind. I fired 1,150 12-gauge trap loads. I had to go to the truck oh, twice in order to bring ammo back to the uh, crow blind in order to shoot. And I probably would have shot more than that. With because I still had to, I had still had to hook it back to the truck, drive the truck back to the blind, dump out the ammo, drive the truck back to the, to its spot, and then hook it back to the blind again. So <laughs> that's about eleven. It, that's about eleven uh, gallons of shells. Like if I'm going off your five gallon bucket rule. <laughs> well, I don't keep them in five gallon buckets anymore. Uh, what I do is I just keep them in boxes in right, flats. In the flats, okay. right. Oh and uh, at any rate, when you're, you know, you're talking, that's 46 oh. empty boxes of ammo. Oh and God. I've got a picture of that inside the crow blind the day that that happened. And um, uh, that that particular day, it was uh, uh, just uh, just being in the right place at the right time. And oh um, uh, the, the second best shoot that I ever had, I was out in the morning. And I shot 568 in the feeding area up until about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And then I went out in the afternoon on a flyway shoot and killed 143 more, and I wound up with 711 for the day. But that, those are the two best days I've had. But, wow. uh, you know, you, you tend to remember uh, shoots like that That's a right. lot better than you do the beatings that you take <laughs> through the year. There's no uh, doubt. There's no doubt. So so tell me this. What, what gun did you start shooting with like what like did you start on a model 12 or what did you because that was the gun back then yeah what uh what i uh shot uh crows with a lot of them uh like when i was 15 16 17 i shot them with a model 12 it was a skeet gun it was board uh winchester skeet one and uh that's because the majority of the shots that you had were like 
25 yards right. and under, for, you know, in the run and gun days in right. upper New York State. And, uh, uh, you know, the more shooting a young guy gets, because uh, he might not have the experience of an older gent. Right. But, uh, I mean, I can remember when I'd be out there, you know, 17 years old hunting ducks with my dad. By the time I was 17, I could outshoot a lot of grown men who had been doing it their whole life. But here again, it depends how much experience you're getting. I was going up against guys who really uh, were not dying the wool hunters they were more the executive type who might right. get out a few times That's a year right. so you can't compare the two i mean even though you're 17 and they're grown and they've been doing it all your life you've still had more experience than they did right, right. you had more days because you were chasing crows you were chasing ducks you were chasing all that you had way more days and hours on the gun and that that's right. a huge difference right that's experience yeah. on the gun right right that's exactly yeah. right There's and, no doubt about it I know that uh, um, here's another thing, too, as far as technique. <clears throat> um, I use what they refer to as the pull-through method. I get the muzzle swinging good from the back of the bird. And as long as you get that muzzle swinging good, <clears throat> as soon as you see just a touch of daylight out in front of them, bang, you shoot them. Right. Now, if they're in close, or I'm talking point blank, uh, I'm talking, you know, uh, uh, 15 to 20 yards, that to me is point blank, okay, when you're shooting crows. Yeah. <clears throat> if you got a good side shot and the bird's really moving fast, <clears throat> I don't even have any conscious lead at all. I just get that muzzle swinging good, and when I'm dead center, I'm right on them, no lead whatsoever, I'll touch it off. But in that time lag, you're talking about maybe a thousandth of a second. That's all it takes. <clears throat> if that's where I'm talking about timing, okay? Yes. By the time you slap that trigger, it's out there in front of them enough where you just smoke them for crying out loud. I got a picture on the internet of a crow that I shot like that, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing where I've shot them and blown them apart and stuff like that. Right. But this crow, it's a classic, classic photo. It's been on the internet <laughs> for years. It looks like a cannonball was shot through that crow. You can see the cornfield through the crow as my partner Dick is holding it up for the picture. <laughs> I saw that one. <laughs> you did, huh? I know exactly what you're talking about. That's yep. called center 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 punch is what that's called. You know? uh, yeah, that's right. I call it the cannonball crow, oh, but at any rate. God. Uh, yeah, and, and Dick, who's been hunting all his life, and who, you know, just, he shot all over the place. Right. Big game, too. He's hunted right. big game all over the world, too. Uh, he's old enough. He's 86 and still goes like the Duracell bunny. Oh, uh, he used to hunt tigers in India. Well, oh, it was good for still him. legal. When I was 10 and a half years old, my dad almost went into business after the Second World War with Roy Weatherby. And Roy Weatherby's family is from Kansas, as a matter of Get fact. He out. moved out there to Southgate, California. At any rate, oh my God. Uh, uh, but, uh, but they didn't become partners for whatever reason. But my dad still was good friends with Roy, Roy, Roy Weatherby. Oh my. Well, my dad wanted to take me to Kodiak Island to shoot a brown bear. He was going to hunt one, too, one of those Kodiak bears. So he had Roy Weatherby make up a 270 Weatherby Magnum for me, and he had it made with crotch figure wood, which is real dense, <clears throat> so the gun would be heavier. Because right. I was only 10 and a half years old, but I was I was big for my age. Right. So he'd take me out to the rifle range and 
I'd shoot it, you know, first I'd shoot it from a bench and stuff like that. Then I shot it kneeling and sitting and prone and standing and the whole nine yards. So when he figured I was ready and up to it, away we went for Alaska. This was in May of uh, 1958 or 9. It was before Alaska was a state. It was still a territory. And we got up there to Kodiak Island. And I'm the youngest kid to ever shoot a Kodiak bear on Kodiak Island. Uh, it's never been broken since then. And that's my claim to fame other than the crows. So, so like I said, 17? I don't want to be too self-grandizing here because I don't want to come across like that. You're not that way. You're, you were 17 when you shot it? No, I was 10 and a half. Oh, you were 10 and a half? Yeah. Oh, my God. And you shot that 270 Weatherby like nothing. That's well, yeah, that's right. But my dad had Roy Weatherby make it up so it was extra heavy to absorb the recoil. Yeah, but and still. you know it was funny. What I used to do was the guide's oh uh, assistant. <clears throat> he had a thirty oh six. It was called a thirty oh six BSA. It has a it had a muzzle brake on it. So he said, if you can shoot that uh, two seventy, you can handle this all at six. <clears throat> so he hands it to me, and I shot it, and I said, I'll be damned for that muzzle brake at ten and a half. I said, that thing has less recoil than my 270 for crying yeah. out loud. Yeah. So, so but my, that's the way my dad brought me up and everything. <laughs> and um, he was a, a very good uh, mentor. Now, uh, and, and, you know, I got a lot of fond memories and stuff, uh, awesome. you know, hunting with him. And, and, uh, but he's the one who got me started on the crows with the run and gun method. And <clears throat> when I had a choice... <laughs> between hunting crows and hunting woodchucks, I went for the crows because Every it was time. more action. That's right. You weren't sitting around waiting and waiting and waiting for some woodchuck to pop his head up out of the hole where <laughs> maybe you got a shot every hour if you were lucky, you know? Yep. That that didn't appeal to me at all, where my dad, he was more patient than I was in that regard. Yeah, see, I wasn't patient at all either. I, I uh, my grandfather and my dad, uh, my grandfather hunted a lot of deer, and he had some incredible beagles, and they did an enormous amount of rabbit hunting. And his yeah. beagles were just incredible, incredible dogs. And my dad's favorite thing was was pheasants, and then ducks were number two. So, And I took to the duck hunting like... I love pheasant hunting. It's so much fun, and we did a lot of rough grouse hunting because I grew up in Pennsylvania, and we did a lot of that. But I'll tell you what, like I just got eaten up by the ducks, and then anything on the wing has just... Where in Pennsylvania are you talking about? We grew up in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, northeast, like coal country. I'll tell you another quick story. I wanted a twenty-two caliber rimfire rifle to shoot rabbits with. So it was my birthday, February the 26th, and the whole family sitting around the table. And I noticed this new wrought iron table with a glass top. And uh, at any rate, uh, because February was great with snow on the ground, the rabbits stick out, you know, where you can see them and just pop them in the head. At any rate, he says, what do you think of your new birthday? I was expecting a 22 rifle. He says, I got this... um, um, 
<clears throat> table for you, Bob. He says, so the whole family can enjoy it. So I start crying because I was crushed. I didn't want a table for my darn birthday present. <laughs> so after he had his fun with me, he says, go upstairs and look under your bed. Boy, I go flying up the stairs, and there's this big, long box. It's all gift-wrapped with a big bow on it. Oh Boy, God. I tore into it. And there was my twenty-two caliber rifle bolt action with a peep sight. Boy, I was ready after that. The rabbits didn't stand a chance after that deal. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh yep. But, you know, it's little things like that. Life memories, you know That's what right. I mean? That, uh, That's right. That make life worthwhile, <clears throat> provided you got some good memories, that is. That's right. That's right. Well, let's do this. Let's, is, there, is there anything, like if you could leave somebody on the crow hunting side with, with like the major things to look for or to pay attention to... <clears throat> What would be like, say, top five or a couple things to really, really pay attention to to be a better crow hunter? Okay. Number one, get familiar with your shotgun so it doesn't feel like a foreign object to you. you Shoot it as much as you possibly can. If you're going to practice on clay birds, if you're having a bad day, don't keep practicing. There Put you go. the gun up and go out the next day when you're fresh and you feel better. That's right. <clears throat> because what you do is you just reinforce bad habits when you're tired. And then it's just more frustrating when you're not hitting them like you should or not hitting them at all. That's a great and, idea. <clears throat> uh, get more proficient with your shotgun. Also, uh, uh, as far as shot goes, that is up to the individual. I've shot seven and a half and eights for decades and done real well with it. Other guys don't have the confidence in it, but if they want to shoot sixes, five, fours, they can shoot buckshot at them. <laughs> as long as they you know, kill them, it don't whatever matter. Turn, whatever turns them on, you That's know what right. I mean? But from my experience, a good trap load in a 12-gauge is damn hard to beat yep. as far as crows go. Yep. Yep. Next, next would be <clears throat> when you get out there looking for crows. When you get permission uh, on on some place to hunt, <clears throat> follow the farmer's instructions. And for God's sake, don't drive across any plowed ground during the fall. You know, Amen. ask the farmer. And many times I've done this myself. If the ground is plowed, ask him. Would you mind, because I carry so much junk with me, That's right. would you mind if I drove the edges of the field where I put one track along the very edge of the field and I'll keep the other track in the tulies when I'm driving right. around the field and I'll just stay to the edges? Some of them will say yes, some of them will say no. The ones that say no, if you want to hunt there, then it's a matter of hoofing your stuff in there like <laughs> That's that. That's right. Uh, to get, here's, here's another <clears throat> tip, too. On areas where you know that you got a lot of crows to work with. <clears throat> what I do is in those situations where you got to haul in ammo because that it weighs the most is what I will do is I'll go out at dusk and I'll haul in the ammo that I figure I will need for that hunt the next day. And I'll just put a tarp over it. <clears throat> yeah. And then the next day, all I have to worry about, if I've already got a blind built in there yep. that conceals the rule, well, then all you got to do is carry your shotgun and bucket. 
you're high five and that's it. And you go in there and uh, you, you might have a few decoys with you and it makes it uh, a lot easier on you. And then <clears throat> if you don't shoot up all the ammo and you plan on shooting it again in the next few days or whatever, I just leave the tarp on there because right. in, most, in most of the areas that I hunt on, Nobody in their right mind would walk back there where I'm hunting anyway. So you don't have to worry about your ammo getting lifted and walking off. That's right. Other, other things that I would recommend, too, besides listening to the farmer's instructions, it, it's just common courtesy. Make sure that you don't leave candy wrappers or pop cans oh, there when you leave and pick up your empties when you go, especially if he's got livestock. Get yourself one yeah. of those magnets where the, yes. uh, most of the shells today, they might look brass, but they still, most of them still have uh, steel heads, and boy, they adhere to a magnet yep. real well. Yep. And uh, this, this way, you know, you clean it up, and you make it look like it never happened, and uh, you don't have to worry about having a hunting place to shoot for many years to come. Other things <clears throat> that I would recommend, too, be real, real, real choosy and picky who you take with you because it's like the old saying goes loose lips sink ships <laughs> if you got a hot spot you got to keep it hot and you got to keep it protected i know that sucks but everybody's got to do their homework and find their own spot so i i yes <laughs> you know it's, it's like anything else if you go to the trouble of finding a good area yep you keep it to yourself, and if you, if you take someone with you, when you first take him, he's got to go in with a blindfold going in and out so he doesn't know where he's at. That's right. Loud. you got to turn him around a couple times before you take the blindfold off, too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yep, that's, that's exactly right. So oh, at funny. any rate, um, and that's not to say even as careful as I am, uh, I've had uh, one instance in all the years where I had uh, uh, a guy betray me oh, like that. that and uh, for, unfortunately for him, the crows left the area. So oh, now, sorry. even if he went back there, he's not going to do anything. So, uh, uh, But I hunt in a lot of different areas, different states and so on. But I just, I just, you know, I never take them again. There were no harsh words that were said or anything right, like right. that because... I really wasn't mad at him. I was mad at me. Right. So I just said to myself, well, I just got to be more careful. And I have been. So that, you know, that's basically it. So Um, other, let's see, other things that I would say, um, um, as you know, in regard to the crows, you've got to pay attention, uh, really watching them and getting to learn their habits. That way, a lot of times where in our conversation earlier with you, I said, one of the places I used to hunt was 11 miles from the roost and you didn't have to get down there. Well, it was still dark out setting out decoys. You get out there at first light and you had plenty of time to get things ready by the time the crows arrived. So, um, here again, that's learning their habits when they start getting, when they start arriving to certain areas like that. And as long as a guy really pays attention to stuff like that, he'll do well. And that's that's basically it. Yeah, I mean, that's perfect. That's perfect info, and that's a lot of great info. So if if people want to find anything about you or uh, I, I do, the next time I'm over that way uh, and, and we all get back to normal and all that other crap, I am going to call you because I do want to come see the museum. I do want to see that and see what what that is all about. That would be incredible. 
Yeah. Yeah, I've got uh, different piebald crows that are mounted in the museum. I've got an old crow roost bombing sign that I bought off a game warden in El Reno, Oklahoma, (laughs) back in the late 70s. And it was hanging on the wall. And I asked him, I said, I said, you feel like selling that? And he said, well, that thing's been here forever. We kind of like it. So I said, I'll tell you what. I said, uh, I'll give you 20 bucks cash for it. He says, you just bought a crow roost bombing sign. So away I went with it. And I love it. I, I had it on my wall for years. And then finally I broke down and I had it matted and I had it framed. And it looks real, real uh, good. It it preserves it a lot better behind glass and everything like that. And um, that's awesome. I've got old crow decoys that go back to the 1930s and 40s, and I've oh, got old incredible. hand calls that go back clear back to 1900, and just all all kinds of crow hunting memorabilia. You name it, I got it. That's awesome. Okay, if guys want to look up anything on uh, on YouTube, they just need to look for your name, right? And that and that's yeah. Much what it. They, what they need to do is if they want to look at any of the videos yep. on there. Uh, all they need to do is uh, type in Bob Aronson uh, crow hunting, and it'll go right to it. As a matter of fact, besides that, it'll have some other videos on there of me hunting ducks and geese in Argentina That's, and all oh, kinds cool. of stuff. It's got a great piece of film footage where a guy was shooting the film footage inside a pit. We were uh, hunting Magellan geese. And like I said, geese are big and they're slow when they're yep. over decoys, so it's yep. no marvelous shotgunning feet okay <laughs> i mean it looks great on hey, film you, you okay and to the, to the average shotgunner <laughs> i'm really gonna wow him but trust me it wasn't all that difficult but you can see five geese in the air and when i come up out of the pit i was using a, a, a model 870 remington pump gun and uh just bang, 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 bang. You see five dead geese in the air all at one time. They're like that. So at any rate, that's pretty cool to look at. But like that's I awesome. say, uh, it wasn't all that difficult. But the cameraman, he was the one who had the hard job capturing all about that, seeing my muzzle swinging on each each individual goose. Right. That's right. And, and you can hear the cameraman say, I got them all. They're like that. So uh, that was like, but that was the best part of it because oh, the cameraman cool. got more excited than me over that. Listen, this has been a pleasure talking, and I'd love to do it again. I love just sitting and talking, and that's what this, that's what this is all about. So that's great. So I will absolutely – look you up when i'm over that way and i'll give you enough notice and i want to come over and see the museum and the whole deal so we'll definitely now do let that. me ask you this in yes, closing just yes, what month of the year are you planning this oh well when we get back to normal i could kind of come over that way our main office is in is in liberty missouri in kansas city right around there so oh uh, yeah so, you could be here in no time for liberty what what, uh, what i would say is uh, the best time to catch me is during the non that's hunting right. season Correct. because i'm gone a lot that's uh, right yeah so if you uh, if you can give me at least 24 hours notice oh, i'll, I'll be here with a pot of coffee ready waiting <laughs> for you i love it i'll do that Bob, pleasure talking to you. Appreciate it so much. And get back to your uh, shoot and pull and hope you guys have a great weekend. All right, Mario. Thank you. So thanks for the interview. You got it, Bob. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bob Aronson, the inc- man, just the crow, uh, man, the crow king. I don't know what else to call him. He's uh, uh, just a ton of knowledge, incredible knowledge, and he is just, man, I love talking to him. That's the Final Approach Podcast. 
Uh, big shout outs to uh, our big partners, Weatherby. We were actually talking to Bob about Weatherby and, and a couple other things before and uh, Federal Ammunition. Roger Sporting Goods and uh, my buddy uh, Rob up at Ranchland Outfitters. That's the FA podcast for today. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Mario. I'm out.